Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I cover the Supreme Court for Law360. My name is Jimmy Hoover. Uh, My usual co-host, Natalie Rodriguez, is out today. So I will be taking the time to interview veteran Supreme Court lawyer Carter Phillips about his prolific career arguing before the justices. But before we get to my interview with Carter, there are just a few items we need to get to. First, let's turn to the shadow docket. There were two election-related applications or requests made at the Supreme Court involving you know, litigation spiraling out of the 2020 election. One of those that I want to focus on comes from Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican from South Carolina that most of our listeners probably know. Uh, he filed an emergency request on Friday asking the justices to shield him from having to testify before a Georgia grand jury about his contacts with Georgia election officials after the 2020 election. So a local prosecutor is basically investigating a call that Graham had with the state secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, a Republican, wherein uh, Raffensperger later claimed that he felt Graham was basically applying political pressure on him to reject lawful absentee ballots. So Graham wants to be protected by the Supreme Court from having to answer questions about that phone call and others under the Constitution's speech and debate clause. To make a long story short, Graham says that these were legitimate legislative activities and that the Constitution basically grants him immunity from having to answer questions about um, those activities in any kind of outside formal proceeding like a grand jury investigation. So this week, Justice Clarence Thomas, who's the circuit justice for where this litigation came, he put in a temporary stay on Graham having to appear before the grand jury, basically freezing any further litigation until the full court can act here. Um, Fast-moving situation. Uh, We will update you when the Supreme Court finally issues a ruling on his application uh, to be protected from having to testify. So moving on, uh, I want to also mention before the interview, uh, there were a couple pretty interesting speeches from the justices over the last week. One in particular uh, made some news, and that came from Justice Samuel Alito. He's been fairly quiet um, since last term when he obviously was the majority author of the Dobbs ruling overturning Roe versus Wade, a pretty controversial case, to say the least, in which it was actually leaked ahead of time, and uh, Alito has been fairly tight-lipped about that whole situation. Um, But on Tuesday, he actually opened up a little bit more about what he called a, quote, betrayal of trust from someone in the court and how it's affected the institution. And one thing that actually really stood out to me was him describing how the leak itself turned him and his colleagues into what he basically called targets for murder. Um, Obviously, this isn't too far-fetched given that an armed man was in fact arrested outside of Justice Kavanaugh's home recently who said that he had planned to assassinate the justice over, among other things, his position, his likely position at that point in the abortion case. So let's listen in on Justice Alito and what he described was the danger that this leak put him and his colleagues in. The leak also made those of us who were thought to be in the majority in support of overruling Roe and Casey targets for assassination because it gave people a rational reason to think they could prevent that from happening by killing one of us. And we know that a a man has been charged with attempting to kill Justice Kavanaugh. It's a pending case, so I won't say anything more about that. 
So that's it for updates this week. Let's turn now to my interview with guest Carter Phillips, a partner at Sidley Austin LLP. Carter has argued before the justices a total of 88 times and has actually argued more cases as a private practitioner before the court than any other private lawyer in the country. He clerked for former Chief Justice Warren Burger and has been an adjunct professor at Northwestern University School of Law, where he also ran the school's Supreme Court Clinic. Carter will be arguing his 89th Supreme Court case on November 8th in Mallory versus Norfolk Southern Railway. Welcome to the show, Carter. It's good to be here, Jimmy. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, sure. Um, so let's kind of just rewind the clock a little bit. Uh, after your clerkship with Chief Justice Berger, I understand you argued your first uh, Supreme Court case while you were in the SG's office. What What do you remember about that case? What can you share with us? Well, it was the first term that Justice O'Connor was on the court, so I'll give you a frame of reference. And it was, I think, ended up being her third opinion um, that she issued while she was uh, a justice on the Supreme Court. The case had to do with transporting forged securities in interstate commerce and they've been moved from Ohio to Pennsylvania and the question is were they in forged condition before or after and did it make a difference it's a criminal case and uh, the uh, defendant had lost below so he was the petitioner but there was a square conflict in the circuits on the statutory question and <clears throat> so it was the kind of argument you would expect as a First one for an assistant in the SG's office, it was kind of a low-level criminal case, not a, not a huge uh, precedent in, in, in either win or lose, which I suppose is the way you can justify having 29-year-olds stand up and represent sure, sure. the United States. <laughs> and um, it, I, I'm wondering, like, when you're standing up in the lectern, you probably aren't envisioning, oh, I'm probably going to make it back here another 87 times over the next, uh, you know, quarter century well, it's a little different when you're in the SG's office because you know that there's a, a realistic chance that you'll be back in a in a few months. And, and so I did argue nine cases there over a little more than three years. Um, I have to say, after I left, I, I wasn't 100 percent certain I would ever argue again. Um, and when I got my first argument at Sidley, I, I didn't necessarily assume that there would be a second one. Now, the first one at Sidley was interesting because that was it turned out to be the, the first opinion that Justice Scalia wrote. Just kind of touching on Scalia a little bit. I've heard you mention that he kind of, you were in the SG's office when he joined the bench, right? And and I've heard you say that he kind of changed the tone of oral arguments a little bit. Yeah, well, I was in the SG's office when Berger was the chief justice. So I was in, I was in private practice when Justice Scalia went on to court and Justice Rehnquist became the chief justice. <clears throat> and when I argued cases, when I was in the S, in the SG's office, get a 30-minute oral argument. You you might get 10 or 12 questions during that period, and a lot of times, I mean, my first argument, I've come back and seen. I I I talk for a good five or six minutes before anyone interrupts me, anyway. And um, then Justice Scalia went on the bench, and instead of getting 12 questions in 30 minutes, you got 12 questions in 30 seconds, and they were all hostile. And uh, the effect of that was not only did he bring his own brand of oral argument style, but it changed everybody else's style to some extent because justices who had been a little bit sleepy, I suppose, on the bench uh, took note of the fact that Justice Scalia was 
pointing out particular ways of thinking about the case that might not be the way they were thinking about the case. So in order to counteract that effect, they started asking more questions. So Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall both became much more active questioners after Justice Scalia went on the bench than they had been before. Right. And now it's a it's a famously hot bench. And in fact, the new uh, Supreme Court member, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, has made some headlines in, in recent weeks for how active of a questioner she's been. What have you made of uh, the, the newest member of the court so far, Carter? She's fit right in, as far as I can tell. The, the, I mean, the truth is, <clears throat> maybe it was news when Justice Scalia became much more active. And and then so maybe maybe you say it was some news when Justice Sotomayor, you know, immediately hit the ground running. And and now Justice Jackson has. I mean, the truth is a lot of the justices, they come from courts already. They're accustomed to asking questions. Usually takes a little while to get accustomed to the nine members versus three members that you normally deal with. But they're used to they're used to this process. And so it doesn't shock me that they'd play it that anyone would play a significant role um you know it's good in some ways uh, you know i always worried about what we lose with justice Breyer, and what you really lose are those three and four page long questions that are wonderful if you want to take a time to drink a little water while you're standing at the podium but uh the uh, and maybe she'll replace that maybe i'll it'll be i'll be comfortable <laughs> going for the glass when justice jackson asks the question but um, I, I will miss that feature because you could, that was a guarantee, but Justice Breyer would ask you at least one very long question every, every oral argument. Did you have a favorite uh, Breyer hypothetical? Well, the one that he asked me about, be, you know, an arbitration that was you know, conducted in the, in the deepest, darkest tunnel of the, of the worst coal mine in West Virginia or something like that. And I thought, really? <laughs> 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 but you know that, those were just you know he was he he made them all very extreme in order to to make his point that if you go down this path you know, things can get can get murky if nothing else. It's funny I, I I understand that you know Supreme Court lawyers they moot their arguments um and they try and you know they have a they they test their arguments out with with people that are trying to prep them for a whole universe of questions. It's probably pretty hard to predict some of the questions that Breyer would would come up with. Right? No, you couldn't. You couldn't remotely think of the of the exact hypothetical, but you know the. But you certainly could think of extreme versions of whatever your theory of the case is and where the where it would lead to. So I mean, you know, you just it's this is just a hyperbolic version of of those same kinds of questions. So it's not they're not they're not that difficult to sort out. Yeah, the the dynamics on the bench are always um, pretty fascinating to me as a as a court watcher. Um, Justice Alito is someone who's kind of made a lot of news lately for his prominent majority decisions from the court. Whether you're talking about this this recent um, decision overturning Roe versus Wade, or a few terms ago in the big uh, public sector union case, Janice, I'm wondering what you make of Justice Alito's kind of ascendance into the kind of mainstream uh, public spotlight, if you will, from, I think he was probably a little bit more of an obscure justice, at least to non, you know, to lay people, ordinary uh, Americans rather than court watchers. What have you made of that, given that I know that um, you overlapped with Justice Alito in the in the government for a spell? Justice Alito and I actually interviewed for the same job on the same day and ended up uh, having lunch together uh, in the cafeteria of the basement of the Justice Department. 
um, which fortunately we, we both like baseball. So we spent a lot of time talking about the Phillies and the Pirates, which are our respective teams. And uh, so that went well. And yeah, we our offices were, were pretty close to each other and our and we socialized a fair amount um, during those years. We played softball on the same team. And in fact, he actually he was a member of Sidley's softball team and won uh, for a summer or two after I left the Justice Department and while he was still at that point at the Office of Legal Counsel. Um, I've often said, I think if they'd taken a vote of, of the 21 people in the Solicitor General's office, and who was the least likely to end up on the Supreme Court, <clears throat> pretty good chance that uh, Sam Alito would have been on it, would have been right there at the, the top of that vote count. Um, he's not got the kind of personality that makes you think immediately that uh, he's going to sidle up to political types and end up uh, in the position that he's in. So that that part's interesting. You know, in terms of his stature on the on the bench, I mean, you know, it, it was interesting when I when I knew him as an advocate because he was the same kind of quiet almost reticent person in person, you know, in person. Um, but then when he went to the to the podium to argue, it's a completely different persona. I mean, he much more aggressive, much more self-confident. It was uh, it was really interesting to watch this transformation at the podium. So I guess I'm not surprised that, you know, going on the bench, um, he would have a little different um, stature or or way of presenting himself and he's always been good i mean he he was he told me himself that there was a little adjustment period to getting getting when you go to nine as opposed to three judges going to nine was a little tough but he's he's clearly made a mark there and he asks extraordinarily good questions and the and the newest arrangement for oral arguments actually favors him because he didn't have to sort of jump in quite the way he did if he you know, with the la- with the last round of questions that the chief justice gives the individual justices, makes it a little easier. You know, in terms of the prominence of the opinions, I mean, a lot of that has to do with the with the tilt of the court. Um, you know, I think he was probably a little frustrated in the early years that he was probably more in the minority than he would have liked. Now he's got a majority, and he's and he's not the senior. Uh, conservative, I believe Justice Thomas is that, but he is the next most senior conservative, not 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 the Chief Justice, I suppose. And um, that's you know, so it's not surprising that he would be right being at, be asked to write opinions that uh, stake out the court's position. Yeah, I I feel like sometimes he gets a reputation as kind of marching to the beat of his own drum. But would you say that he? I mean, he's shown an ability to hold together. A majority on this court um, was that the case in the in the government office and the back in the SG's office? You know his willingness to come to the table, or is he? Is, does it just so happen that this is a new conservative court where there's just other like-minded justices to him? Yeah, the SG role <clears throat> doesn't really call for that. You know, I mean, mostly the cases are not controversial. So ninety ninety eight percent of the work you do in the government. It sort of follows one of three principles. If if you have money, the government wants it. If you want the government's money, you don't get it. And if you violate the law, you go to jail. I mean, that's <laughs> if you follow those three principles as a government lawyer, you probably get the right result 98% of the time. So I, I, I don't I don't know that you could have gleaned from his experience at the in that office anything about how he would do in terms of 
of dealing with uh, the justices. But I think in in general, I don't think it's. I mean, I, I do think it's that he's got a super majority of justices who share his view of a particular issue, and so he writes it out and and they join. Do you remember your reaction to seeing the news of the leaked Dobbs opinion? Um, back in May, uh, an unprecedented event in the Supreme Court's history. Yeah, I, I was at home and I got a, you know, a crazy headline came over, came over the, you know, my iPhone. And I mean, I, you know, there have been leaks in the past of some of information about cases. I, I, this is the first time I can recall a, a full-fledged draft of the brief being um, produced. Well ahead of time. I mean, actually, the year I clerked, um, the first opinion I worked on for Chief Justice Berger ended up in the front in the in the uh, ABC News, the nightly news on ABC Sunday night, two days before it was going to be released to the public. And I thought for sure I'd get fired because the chief would assume that I had something to do with it. And it turned out he, he laughed at that thought. Which which case was that? You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't even a particularly uh, important case. It was a case involving Nebraska inmates and and parole rights. <clears throat> and the truth is, Tim O'Brien at ABC, I think it was, had a connection with the with the, one of the printers in the print shop in the basement of the court. And he actually got four or five cases during the '78 term and announced them. It, it, ultimately, the, interestingly, the last one that he announced, he actually ended up getting a copy before the final the final version and one of the justices changed the vote so what he had as the majority opinion of the court actually turned out to be the dissenting opinion of the court mm. but all of those you know those were decisions that were released you know maybe a day before the oral argument or maybe sorry the release of the opinion itself this you know a, a draft opinion that was i think drafted in february or released in february this goes to the public in May for an opinion that almost everybody assumes is not coming out till the end of June. I mean, that's unprecedented. Can I ask about um, those days in the in the Burger Court? I know that um, you know uh, people often talk to people often talk about the the book The Brethren having been like kind of an earth shattering book for the Supreme Court. I think it was published maybe after you completed your clerkship. Was there like a sense in the building that this was coming, or maybe some? kind of for, foreboding about it because um, it was not particularly flattering, obviously. Yeah, no, it's, it, it wasn't. Uh, and it's probably the way you, you would expect the perspect- from the perspective of law clerks for certain justices commenting about other justices that, uh, you know, oftentimes if you're, if you, you know, you're always, you're always going to be flattering about your own justice. You can almost always going to be unflattering in your appraisal of the other justices. Um, but yeah, that, that we knew it was in the works when I was clerking. I also knew that the cutoff was before my clerkship. So I knew I would never have to deal with the, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, uh, effort to needle out of me, whatever information they could about my clerkship. But, uh, it was a year or maybe two years after I left the court that um, that the book came out. And there was a you know, Chief, Chief Justice Berger used to have reunions. Actually, we still have reunions periodically of, of all of his former clerks. And the, the year after the Brethren came out, 
there was not surprisingly a bit of a debate among the clerks. And, and it became pretty clear that there was a segment who absolutely had nothing to do with talking to Woodward and, and a segment that obviously did talk um, because there was one that said anybody who talked, you know, should be drawn and quartered and whatever yeah. horrible things should be done. And the others would say, well, I'm not sure if that's the right answer if it turns out that, that the author of the book says that they have quotations from other people saying this and that about the chief. Don't you think we should defend the chief? And it was interesting because Berger's basic take on it all was he didn't have any problem with any of the clerks talking about anything they thought they needed to talk about as long as they didn't actually reveal any of the inner workings of the court's processes. Yeah, it's interesting. It it seems to be a uh, there seems to have been a long history of this, uh, even if this latest example was kind of the most maybe shocking to some uh, court watchers. Let's get kind of back into, let's get back up to 2022. Um, so you're going to be at the court on uh, November 8th, arguing in the case, as I said earlier, uh, Mallory versus Norfolk Southern. What can you tell us about this case and uh, why is it important? So if, if you went to law school, this case will feel somewhat familiar because it it's a personal jurisdiction case. So it's, it's the first excuse I've had and close to 50 years since I left law school to have to read Pinoyer versus Neff and get paid for reading it. Um, the, the issue in the case is pretty straightforward. You have a Virginia resident injured in Virginia or maybe Ohio who sues a Virginia corporation, both principal place of business and, and state of incorporation. And the lawsuits brought in the Court of Common Pleas in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania which would make most people scratch their head and say, hmm, doesn't seem to have much to do with the litigation. Um, There's an odd statute in Pennsylvania that allows um, the exercise of general personal jurisdiction against any corporation that is registered to do business in the state. That's not a single statute. It's a combination of two statutes that affects that. In any event, it's the only state that now has that uh, particular approach. And the reason it's important uh, is that, at least from the business community's perspective, was that the court eight or so years ago in Daimler took the position that corporations can only be sued for general jurisdiction in the states where they are at home, which is usually either where they're incorporated or their principal place of business. There may be other and unusual circumstances, but that's the basic rule. And this would say that that rule doesn't apply if uh, if you do business out of state and you're entire and you're required to do to register as a condition of doing business out of state. So, um, you know, f- for business, the business community that's concerned about plaintiffs who forum shop, it'd be a big deal if the court overturns effectively guts the protections of uh, Daimler. Yeah, I could see this being a big deal for uh, the business community. Speaking of business, you're you're a business lawyer. You represent a lot of corporations before the Supreme Court. I'm wondering you know, kind of piggybacking off the Dobbs conversation. We've seen a court that's been more willing to revisit precedent in recent years and overturn precedent they disagree with. This is often a conversation around abortion and, and I guess this term affirmative action, but what is the court's new approach for stare decisis mean for the business world? Um, is it something to be that they are fearful of or maybe trying to take advantage of? Well, it's probably both. I mean, I, I, I look, business usually prefers some some stability in the law. And so uh, a serious retreat from stare decisis will necessarily signal a substantial instability in the law, or at least the risk of it. And so, you know, to give you a concrete example, the 
Supreme Court more than a decade ago held that the size and punitive damage award has to be proportional to the compensatory award. That rule has served the business community well. If the court wants to, were to revisit, it's a State Farm case. If the court were to revisit State Farm on a question of, you know, if you go back to 1868, did the 14th Amendment provide a, a uh, limit on punitive damages that juries could award? I, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but that's a very different question than the court answered when it uh, issued the State Farm decision. Um, and so if the court were to reconsider that ruling, that would be a, a huge hit to the business community. Of course, the flip side is there may be some rules out there, securities, antitrust, et cetera, which are more restrictive of businesses, and they might be subject to revision if uh, with this court, because the court does seem certainly more open to reconsidering its prior decisions than the court has ever been before. Interesting. So last question here, Carter, um, you know, in the 87 arguments since 1982, when you were standing up before the court and uh, new Justice O'Connor arguing that case about forged checks on behalf of the uh, U.S. government, what are some lessons that you've learned to be basically the most effective Supreme Court advocate possible? Well, I think the most important problem you have to solve is kind of what party how, what what of your case can you give up without losing the case it's incredibly important to understand that so the, the metaphor i use if you're a turtle and you're under your shell you know at what point do you, do you actually leave your shell and be exposed in a way that um, <laughs> places you at serious risk of of losing the case so it's really important to understand what what you can give up and what you can't give up because you know, some justices are going to push you to say, well, what about this fact? Is this fact important? Is this how does it, you know how does that work? And to the extent that you can honestly say, I don't need that. That doesn't that's not critical to me, and be in a position to say that. I think you develop solid credibility with the justices. Um, I think it also helps. Just I mean, candidly, it gets, if anybody were to say that it's, it it doesn't get easier, is wrong. It gets much easier because you just get more comfortable in the environment. Um, it helps you, you see the same faces over and over again. That's the one nice thing about the Supreme Court. It's a fixed bench. You know exactly who's going to be on the bench when you show up. So you can kind of prepare for them uh, by personality. And the more you do it, the more readily you can uh, you can prepare in those circumstances. Um, but beyond that, I, you know, the truth is the same preparation that I used to use when I was in the SG, SG's office, the same preparation I do now as far as you know, what I have to read and what I need to know before I stand up. I just had to be ready for a lot more questions than I did in those days. <laughs> right. Well, I think uh, turtles are always a good metaphor for the Supreme Court. Um, Carter, thank you so much for, for joining the show. I really appreciate your time. Now, before I log off here, I want to mention the blockbuster hearing that is taking place on Monday, October 31st, also Halloween, in probably the two most explosive cases of the term dealing with affirmative action in the college admissions process. Uh, the petitioner in these two cases is the anti-affirmative action group Students for Fair Admissions, and they are arguing that the race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina are basically illegal race discrimination in violation of the Civil Rights Act and the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. These cases have the potential to be you know, very significant blockbusters 
boosters that overrule the 2003 ruling in Grutter versus Bollinger that actually upheld the use of race in the college admissions process. It's as I said, I don't think I need to oversell it. Probably the two biggest cases of the term, and I will be in the courtroom for oral arguments, and we are planning here on the term to release a special episode Monday, diving into all the justices' questions and seeing what we can figure out and learn after those arguments. So definitely stay tuned. And yeah, thanks for listening, folks. If you like this episode, please leave a review. I'd like to now thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney, Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term.